Uh, it's time for us to look at the Bible together. So you might like to get a Bible off the ledge in front of you, or you might have brought your own, or you might like to use it on your phone, in which case, uh, if you haven't got an app, we recommend the Bible.com one, which you can look up at your leisure. 964 is the page, if you're using one of these blue ones from the ledge. And we're reading the book of 2 Timothy. So this is the second letter, that's why there's a two at the start, written by Paul, an older Christian leader, to Timothy, a younger Christian leader. Uh, It's one of the more personal sections of the Bible. Uh, And we can tell that because, as you'll see when we start reading it, Paul refers to Timothy as his son. Now, they weren't blood relatives, uh, but they... Uh, nonetheless had a sort of father-son relationship going on, a very close relationship. If you missed Tim's talk last week, looking at chapter 1, you can get that on our website and have a listen to that during the week. So let's have a look at it. 2 Timothy, chapter 2, starting at verse 1. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I'm saying... For the Lord will give you insight into all this. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel, for which I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Here is a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. By the way, my name's Kirk. I'm the Youth and Young Adults Minister here. Uh, If you missed me speaking at the start, hi, it's great to have you with us. We're going to look at this passage in a bit of detail. And in particular, those first two verses of the chapter set the scene where Paul instructs Timothy to do two things. In the first verse, he instructs him to be strong in grace. And in the second verse, he instructs him to pass on the faith to other people. So we'll look at that in a fair bit of detail tonight. The first is to be strong in grace. Now, grace, not something you say before dinner. That's like a nickname for a prayer. Uh, Grace, when we talk about the actual meaning of the word, is when you show someone favour or you show someone love even when they don't deserve it. Okay, So it's an act of love that we don't earn. We don't score enough points and then get it. We just are given it. And we might even be given this act of love when we actually deserve the opposite. We actually deserve punishment. So that's grace. Grace... If you're visiting today, you're checking out Christianity, grace is central to Christianity, right? It is like right at the heart of everything. 
And the one who shows us the most grace is Jesus Christ. So if we were to rewind back into chapter 1, and you might like to flick back and have a look at verse 9, Paul says this about Jesus. He saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. So Jesus saves us from punishment that we deserve, calls us to live differently, and a holy life that follows him. And we don't get this special relationship with Jesus because we're particularly morally sound people or because we've racked up a certain amount of uh, good behavior points. We get given it because of the grace of God, because Jesus gives us that love even though we don't deserve it. And so Paul tells Timothy, you need to be strong in grace. Now the implication of that is you can be weak in grace, Uh, And that's an interesting thing to think about, and we'll come back to that sort of at the end of the talk. Um, But we need to be strong in it. The second thing that Paul says to Timothy is to pass on the faith. So just in verse 2 again, uh, And the things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust, which means to pass on, to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. So here's how it works. Paul meets Jesus. Paul experiences the grace of Jesus. He then passes that on to Timothy, who experiences Jesus, and then it's Timothy's job to pass it on to more people so that they can experience the grace of Jesus. That's the structure of it. And in this passage, this is an emphasis on leadership in particular. So you'll notice there he's particularly focused on people who are going to be able to teach, um, so some sort of leadership teaching role there. But it is part of a broader biblical theme that goes through the Old Testament and the New Testament of passing your faith, what you know about God, onto other people. Because we believe what we know about God is good news, and so it's just natural that we should be sharing good news, and it's an important thing to do. Um, so you can, share, you can, you can sh- share what you know about Jesus with other Christians so that they can grow in maturity, so that they can grow in, grow in a deeper relationship with God. You can share what you know about Jesus with uh, people who don't know Jesus, who are not Christians, who perhaps don't have much background in it, so that they have an opportunity to get to know him. And you can help, uh, and you can pass your faith on to children who are growing up in the church community, so that as they grow up, they'll know God as well. The Old Testament has a big focus on the responsibility of families to pass on the faith down the generations. And then that theme is picked up in the New Testament, and we see it here being applied to Timothy. A couple of years ago, I read a book called uh, Movements That Changed the World by an Aussie guy called Steve Addison. And he said, here's the thing about the church. Jesus didn't start the church so that it would be an institution. He didn't, his vision for the church wasn't that we'd buy land and pay tax and do those sort of institutional things. He started the church as a movement that would take the good news to every part of the world. And we're kind of in a spot right now in history where most of the world has been reached by Christians. There's probably still a few um, remote people groups that um, Christians haven't got an opportunity to meet yet. But this has happened, right? This movement has spread across the world. Now, if you think about it, a movement that covers 2,000 years uh, across an entire planet, reaching billions of people, a movement like that must be good at passing the faith on from one person to another. If we let the job of 
you know, contacting the whole world about this good news just to a committee, you know, or to a small group of leaders. You know, maybe Jesus had 12 at the start. If we just left it up to them, it wouldn't have happened. This can only happen by people effectively multiplying themselves and sending it on. So if you're here at the warm-up and we're talking about... Um, and you can... It takes one year to breed one donkey, right? One year of pregnancy grows one donkey. And in the same time, you can breed... 131,000 odd mice and so if you think about those two images the church is to be more like don't take this analogy too far like we're not to become like pests and you know need to be exterminated and this sort of thing but just at a simple level the church is to be more like mice multiplying just spreading it out one person sharing with the next person sharing with the next person sharing with the next person instead of just like putting it all on the shoulders of a few so this is how the church is meant to work Steve Addison uses this phrase Um, contagious relationships. I've got a quote about it up there. He says, the most important factor in a person's decision to adopt a new faith is a close and positive relationship with a committed believer. Missionary movements grow exponentially when the good news spreads through existing networks of pre-existing relationships. And I'm not putting this up here because it's something new where you go, oh, wow, Steve discovered the secret. Like, this is how it's been going for 2,000 years, right? This is what Paul's proposing to Timothy right in this section of the New Testament. He passed his faith on to Timothy. We also know that Paul passed it on to a bunch of other people. You can read about that in the book of Acts and see all these people he met and um, all these leaders that he put into place. And then they, in turn, passed on the good news about Jesus to other people. Here at Sunday at 6, one of our key values is that we will have an apprenticeship for every role. So we picked up on this idea of wanting to multiply ourselves and uh, to pass on the faith. And so we say every experienced leader in any role, from preaching to welcoming, will be training and equipping a young person in that role. That's one of our key values. Uh, we try hard at this. We can get better. This is not, we're not achieving this value perfectly at the moment. We're constantly learning how to do it and seeking to improve at it. But we, we put it in, in as one of the key values because we just believe that the church cannot grow if the whole pass on the faith thing is just left up to a few. Like if we just left it to the staff or we just left it to people over 50 or, you know, like, you know, it just, it's, just, it's not going to be as effective as if everyone is participating in sharing the faith. Now, when churches don't have a culture of passing the faith on to the next generation, that's bad news for that church. That means that that church will quickly stagnate and begin to die and eventually it will need to close down because they've run out of people. And sadly, this happens quite a lot in Melbourne. For whatever reason, over the last few decades, uh, churches in Melbourne have been pretty rubbish at passing on the faith from one generation to the next. The fact that we have so many people under 30 or even under 50 in this room uh, is quite unusual. This is not the usual thing in a church in Melbourne. Um, So it's a bit of a problem. And I've had um, older church members on more than one occasion say, oh, well, the problem is the young people, right? So we've tried to pass it on to the young people, but it hasn't worked. Now, I know a lot of you are in the young people category, but I hope this will still help you understand what we're talking about today. So here's the thing that we've learned from research, is that when young people reject church, they're not necessarily rejecting Jesus. Some, some of them are, but the majority of people are rejecting the way church does things. 
Okay? Maybe it's the style of their particular church. Maybe it's the way they see the adults at that church living out their faith. It will depend on the church, I guess, and, and the context. But that's mostly what they're rejecting. They're still very open to knowing Jesus, having a relationship with Jesus, but they're just a bit sus on the way the church is going about that. And so that's good news, I think, for churches that are struggling to connect with young people, in that young people are still ready to talk about the main thing, the heart of what Christians actually believe, which is Jesus. Young people are still mostly ready to do that. If you are young, you're going to um, school, or you're a young adult, you've got friends and so on, just realise that a lot of young adults are quite open to talking about Jesus. Um, And so here's the thing, though. When Paul's talking about passing on the faith, passing on the teaching... He's not talking about style preferences. Okay? So he's not talking about passing on a particular genre of music for people to sing at church. He's not talking about passing on a particular style of preaching that's more formal or less formal or has jokes or doesn't have jokes or whatever. He's not talking about particular layouts of buildings or, you know, or the way you should lead a discussion in a small group situation. That's not what he's passing on. What he's passing on to Timothy is the good news about Jesus. And that can be expressed in all sorts of ways. And we actually see Paul do that. If you read the book of Acts and you read about Paul's journeys, every time he went to a new city and he experienced a different culture to the one he'd experienced before, he changed the way he did things. He changed the way he communicated. Uh, He changed his strategy in connecting with people according to the culture. So we know from Paul that he's not particularly set on doing church the way people do it at Sunday at 6 or the way the Catholic Church does it down the road or the way some massive church in the city does it. What he's focused on is that people pass on the good news about Jesus. And if you can express that in a way that's going to help people do that, then I'm sure he would be giving it the thumbs up. So please, if you're young, don't think, oh, yeah, the old people have been causing all the problems and not passing it on properly. Young people are just as prone to holding on to their style preference and your sort of personal uh, likes more than the good news, right? So what we want to do is not make the same mistakes and to actually do what Paul's actually saying here. Have a look at verse 8, and we get more focus on Jesus from Paul. He says, Remember Jesus Christ. Raised from the dead, descended from David, this is my gospel. When he says this is my gospel, he means this is my good news. What's the good news? Jesus, raised from the dead, descended from David. Now I'll come back to that verse and unpack it a little bit more just in a moment. Um, But just let's make this clear. He's passing on the good news about Jesus, not, you know, some particular role or whatever's going on at a church service or in a life group or something. Paul uses three examples to help us understand what we're inviting people to participate in when we do pass on the faith. And it's an exciting invitation, but it's also not without challenge. And we get the sense that the challenge is quite big in verse 3, where he says, I mean, imagine if someone says this to you just this week, join with me in suffering. (laughs) This is what he says, join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Okay, so he's putting the challenge up front, like this is not going to be easy. I've never been asked to enroll as a soldier in anything, but I do have some friends who have uh, or who have been in the, the army in the past. And 
Judging from their stories, I'm just going to say that being a soldier is not particularly easy. There's a fair bit of suffering involved, particularly in the initial phases when you're not very fit and you have to get up to a level of fitness standard uh, right at the start. And so uh, there's plenty of challenge going on and there is lots of challenge involved for Christians as well. So let me quickly look at those three examples that he gives. The first example is the soldier. Verse 4, no one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Basically what Jesus is saying here is when you invite people to have a relationship with Jesus, to follow Jesus, what you're doing is you're inviting them to make Jesus the number one priority in their life. That everything else will come second to their relationship with Jesus, that everything else will revolve around it. It's not that the other things become unimportant, It's just that they are less important than following Jesus. If you think about a soldier who's been given orders, who's been given a mission, just say, okay, we're heading off on the mission, we're all going, there's a bunch of soldiers, we're going to do this really important mission. And people start going, I've just just got to go and just sort out, I haven't done my tax, so I'm just going to go back to Australia, do that there, and then maybe I'll get back. Like, if soldiers get distracted by civilian affairs and keep getting distracted by, oh, I forgot to call my mum back, I better, I'll just leave the mission, just go and call mum. You know, like, missions are going to fail, right? This is, and so the same happens when you're following Jesus. If you get distracted, and if you have to head off in and do other things and they become more important, then your relationship with Jesus is not going to last. Turn to the person next to you, and just for a moment... What do you think is the biggest distraction to following Jesus at the moment? Just in the person next to you, just off the top of your head. Could be for you personally, could be for people your age, people you're with. Just have a quick chat about it. Thirty seconds, just a quick chat. We won't pass the microphone and hear about it from you guys, but it could be a good the supper after the service, right? So it could be a good supper conversation for you guys to have, bounce some ideas off each other, see what you think's going on. So that's the first example, soldier. Second example is the example of an athlete. In verse 5, it says, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. Now, just like think about famous athletes. If I say to you, think of a famous athlete, chances are good that you'll think of someone who's done an amazing sporting achievement, but the chances are also good that instead of that, you'll think of someone who's cheated, who's a famous cheat, Like this guy on the screen, Lance Armstrong. Just hands up if you're aware of Lance Armstrong. Okay, yeah, so most people in the room, just if you're you're not aware of what he got up to, he won the Tour de France, the most prestigious uh, long-distance bike race in the world. He won it seven times. 
That, it's amazing to win it once, let alone seven times. And this is after he had cancer. He'd survived cancer and he won this thing seven times, right? An amazing achievement. He was incredibly inspirational. I had friends, Christian friends, non-Christian friends, tell me, I love Lance Armstrong. He's amazing. I've read his book. It's an amazing book. The Christian said it's the second best book ever. You know, like, they, people just thought this guy's the best, right? You know, like... Lance Armstrong, what a guy, you know, brings so much hope to people. Anyway, it turned out that he and his team had implemented this elaborate strategy to be massive cheats. And they were taking a whole lot of uh, performance-enhancing drugs, which are very illegal in the sport, and they had this strategy on not getting detected. And so, long story short, all these victories that he had was because he was cheating. And people's sort of inspiration in him was shattered. The hope that he'd given people was just decimated as we realised. Not only had he cheated, but he'd sort of used up a whole lot of people and abused a whole lot of people on the way and called them lies and so on. I was watching a documentary about this earlier in the year and some people had suspected that there was something a bit off about Lance and his team early on. And they said the main thing was when they saw footage of him uh, riding up a mountain, you know, one of the steepest slopes in the Tour de France, it seemed like he wasn't experiencing any suffering. There didn't seem to be any pain on his face. And long-distance cycling is basically all about pain. <laughs> it's all about how much you can cope with pain, how much you can push through the pain barrier, how much suffering you can cope with. Can you cope with the suffering until the end of the long climb up the mountain? And it's true, right? Because, I mean, I just ride my bike around Diamond Creek and I get a stitch, like, just riding up one of the hills. Like, that's painful enough, let alone going up a European mountain. But Lance Armstrong didn't seem to be experiencing that pain. And we now know that's because he was a big fat cheat. And he wasn't experiencing pain because he's pumped full of drugs. Here's the thing. We can also cheat at being followers of Jesus. Because when you make Jesus the number one priority in your life, you know, if you think back to the soldier example, then sometimes you're going to have to go against the trend because not everyone does make Jesus the number one priority in their life. You're going to have to live differently to other people sometimes. Sometimes you're going to have to say no to things that everyone else is saying yes to. Sometimes you're going to have to say yes to things that nobody else wants to do because you're following Jesus. And that's not always easy. That can be difficult. People can not like you because of that. You can be excluded because of that. It can just be generally a hard thing to do. It can be tempting to dodge that suffering, to cheat and try and get around that hard part of being a Christian. Uh, and we can do this in all sorts of ways. A big full-on example is the way church leaders over the last few decades in Australia handled allegations of child sexual abuse. Right, so we're seeing all this horrible stuff come out in the Royal Commission. Basically, church leaders cheated by not um, allowing the allegations to go to the police, to come out into the open, to be investigated, and so on. They took an easier, cheatier option to cover it up and hope that it would go away. Hasn't worked out well long term. It's been incredibly damaging to a whole lot of people and to the church's reputation in general. And it's good that it's all coming out now in the court cases. Um, but we can think of much more mundane examples of the way we just sort of cheat at being Christians. You know, young people rightly have a reputation, 
acting fairly Christian in a Christian context. So, you know, at church services like this, people sort of being fairly Christian in their behaviour, whatever, you know, whatever that means, their interpretation of it. And, uh, and then sort of but going to school or hanging out with peers or getting online and just behaving completely differently. And um, adults, pretty much exactly the same it's that they're a little bit better at covering it up because they've got more life experience. And so um, this is what we do, right? We can cheat. It's pretty easy to do. You can just pretend to be Christian around Christian people and then you can just live a different way when they're not around. And most of the time you'll get away with it, uh, you know, to some degree. But it does do damage eventually. Let me give you an example. A friend of mine works in a big workplace, hundreds of employees. So... You don't get to know everyone, but it seemed like this one person was pretty well known, uh, this one guy who worked there, sort of a, a senior person in the organisation, as known as a bit of a bully, not very popular, treated people badly. You knew if you were working with him, he would treat you badly. He would look down on you, he'd speak down on you, he'd use you. He'd be generally not a very nice person to have around. And... My friend wasn't the only person who thought this. This was the reputation this person had. She was a churchgoer. She went to a different service that she normally went to and she was surprised to meet this guy at church. Found out that he'd been going there a lot longer than she had and not only that, that he was a senior sort of leader in the church and was a very different, lovely, great guy uh, when he was around church people. So what's going on there? Well, I think in a way, he was cheating at being a Christian because he'd, he'd taken this part of work, you know, this part of his life, which was work, and just sort of not applied his faith there and not tried to follow Jesus in that context. Or maybe he was trying, but he wasn't putting in much effort. <laughs> um, and so we can do that, right? We can also, we, you know, we might sit in judgment and they go, oh, yeah, what a bad bloke. Everyone is capable of doing that in this room. And I certainly have done that to a certain degree, you know, at different points in my life. Not that I'd recommend doing it, it's a bad thing to do, but uh, it's certainly been the case. So here's the thing, right? Most churches in Australia, they have struggled to connect with younger generations. Our church has struggled too. We're doing all right, but we could be doing a lot better. And so the thing about young people, you know, because I've worked with young people for a long time, uh, you guys smell a fake very quickly. <laughs> if someone is speaking Christian things and not living it out, I think young people tend to be pretty switched on to that. They work it out. And let me tell you, if you are faking it and you're just saying Christian stuff, as soon as they work you out, you know, anything you say to them is just... Because why would you bother? Why would you bother listening to someone who's not actually living it out? So if there's one thing we can do to connect with young people, I think it's to be really to bring a lot of honesty into what we do and to seek to not cheat at following Jesus. Paul doesn't want Timothy just to pass on some memory verses or some Christian ideas. He wants Timothy to pass on a life that follows Jesus in every way. Last example is a hard-working farmer. Verse 6, the hard-working farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Friends of mine... Uh, they run a couple of cafes in Western Victoria. And one of their passions is making sure that the coffee that they serve at their cafes is, is as ethically sourced as possible, as in it's not dodgily made or um, obtained. And so 
uh, they've created this small little organization called 32 Hands. The idea of the name is that between the coffee bean being picked and arriving in your skinny latte down the street, uh, there is 16 people or 32 hands that have handled that particular coffee bean. And unfortunately, what sucks about this process is the people who put the majority of the work in, which is the farmers who grow the stuff and pick the stuff in the first place, tend to get the smallest cut of the profits. They get the least amount of money out of all 16 people along the line. And so their organisation is basically seeking to change that and to get the majority of the profits in the hands of the people who actually grow the stuff, which I'm sure we can all agree is the way it should be. Like, it's just a recent thing with, like, global distribution networks and all that sort of thing, that that's, that's not how it would be. Like, in Paul's day when he's writing this, if you were a farmer and you grew some food, you would feed your family first and then you would sell the rest. And that would be how it was. So, and, and, and that would be fair and reasonable because that, that's the way farming works. And so what Paul's basically saying here, hardworking farmer, there is reward for hard work. And so in the Christian life, when you're inviting someone to participate... Uh, and when you're saying, hey, come on, be a part of this, basically saying, it's going to be hard work, it's going to be rewarding hard work. That's what we're inviting you to be involved in. So there we have it. The three things, three examples, let us know that we have to have Jesus Christ as our number one priority, to not be cheats about it, and to be hardworking. The last thing I want to focus on is to come back to verse 8. Because Paul um, says that he gives Paul, uh, Paul gives Timothy an important reminder in verse eight. He says, "Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel. This is my good news." Ultimately, the whole path of this faith thing on that is about Jesus, and it's, that's interesting, right? Because these days, some people think Jesus didn't even exist; that we've just made Jesus up. Most legitimate historians do not believe that. By the way, most legitimate historians would say Jesus definitely did exist. Um, but some people think he's made up. Paul, who's writing this, let's just be very clear, he believed that Jesus was a real person, not just some fictional character who we can take a bit of inspiration from, like Hermione from Harry Potter or something. Like, you know, so, uh, and the reason we know that he's talking about him as a real person is this mention of, of David, in, that, in verse 8. So this is King David from Israel's history. Uh, David remains one of the most well-known kings in the history of the human race. Uh, but it was much more recent when Paul was writing. So everyone who was around at the time would have known that King David was a real person and that he still had descendants, he still had family members, um, generations on who were still alive and connected to him and so on. Uh, a bit like we would we would say you know, Queen Elizabeth or George Washington were real people. Like Nobody really disputes that. That was quite a long time ago, but nobody disputes that you know, they were real people. And so by mentioning King David, Paul connects Jesus with a real family straight away. He's descended from David. He's a member of David's family. And he also, by doing that, because David is such a key uh, character in the Old Testament, he's connecting Jesus with this whole history of God's people, which again is pointing to real events and real things that happened and other real people and so on, and connects Jesus all in with all those things. And David himself saw Jesus, like wrote about Jesus, like this God's chosen one who was coming. David was looking forward to that. And he's connected David in that way as well. So Jesus, real person in real history. 
And as I said, most historians would agree with that. The question then becomes about the miracles, in particular, the big miracle, the resurrection. Did Jesus die and three days later rise again? Paul says he does here, because he says in verse 8, remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead, direct reference to the resurrection. Now here's the thing, the resurrection is a hard thing to believe. Here's a very simple example that I hope doesn't insult your intelligence. Hands up if you've ever been dead for three days and come back to life. Hands up if... Oh, idiots. <laughs> Three people did it. <laughs> Hands up if you've been alive for two days and come back to life. Twelve hours. You get the point, right? Coming back to life after three days is a miracle. Miracles by their very nature are hard to believe. If they were easy to believe, they wouldn't be miracles. They'd just be normal things that happen. Right? So I understand. The resurrection is a hard thing to believe. But at the same time, the Christian faith revolves around this miracle actually happening to a real person in Jesus himself. A friend of mine, he's a minister at another church in Melbourne. He said, oh, this young guy came up and had a chat to him. He'd been getting involved in his church. Very positive. Lots of good things to say about the church. This is good, this is good, this is good, this is good. And then, but then he had, only had one negative thing to say about the church. And he said, do you reckon, instead of talking about Jesus physically rising from the dead... Could we just talk about him as like being risen in our hearts instead? And my mate thought to himself, yeah, we could do that. If my middle name was Satan. <laughs> now, <laughs> he didn't say that. <laughs> he more politely explained to this person <laughs> why it would be a bad idea for a Christian minister to start talking about the resurrection as just being some sort of, you know, I don't know, piece of fiction that we sort of half believe somewhere, somehow, right? Like he said, that doesn't work. The re resurrection's really important to what we believe. We have to follow, that we have, you know, Christianity falls apart without it. Now, I don't have time to unpack the depths of the resurrection right now because it's got all sorts of important consequences. So let me just want, mention one thing that's relevant to our passage today. Without the resurrection... It's going to be pretty hard to be strong in grace. Remember, that's the first verse of the, of the passage, to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. It's going to be pretty hard to be strong in grace because without the resurrection, that grace that Jesus gives us is kind of weak. It's kind of crappy grace. You know, if Jesus was just an ordinary guy, then his grace is just ordinary. If Jesus really rose from the dead, his grace is like, it's freaking amazing. And it can change your life. And that's the difference. Much easier to be strong in it. Grace without the resurrection won't help you be strong when someone criticizes you for being a Christian. It won't help you stick up for yourself when other people are teasing Christians in the conversation you're a part of. And I know this happens a fair bit at school, having talked to, talked to a bunch of you about what goes on at school. It won't help you Late in life, or when you're very sick and close to death, it won't help you have hope for life after death. And it certainly will not help Christians in ISIS-occupied parts of the world stick up for their faith when they're threatened with violence, rape and execution. That grace is weak and it won't help. But if the resurrection happened that grace is strong and it will help 
you in those situations. And look, I'm not having a go at you if you find it difficult to believe the resurrection happened, right? It is difficult to believe. What I'm saying, though, is Christianity doesn't work without it. And whole sections of the Bible are flat-out lies if the resurrection didn't actually happen. So suddenly the book that we base our life on becomes just another book. That's very problematic to being a Christian. If you think about it like this, Paul's asking us to entrust people with the good news. Well, if the good news doesn't include an actual resurrection, I'm not going to trust it myself, let alone bother to pass it on to someone else. So, whenever you're passing your faith on to another person, never forget Jesus, never forget that he rose from the dead, and that without that we can't experience his grace. I want to finish right now just by praying the final verses of our Bible reading today. Paul calls these words a trustworthy saying. The likelihood is they were from a song or a group prayer that people prayed in his day, much like we've been doing with our songs earlier. So let me just use that as a prayer. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Amen.